and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. By trade, I work as an executive coach and I work as a mental performance coach where I get to work with athletes and executives and teams and organizations on the mental side of performance. So I love what I do every day. I get to work with brilliant people who are trying to unlock their potential or see new possibilities so that they can enjoy success. Really fortunate to find a career and a path that just fills me up every day. And as a result of that career, I decided to launch this podcast to find out how are others intentionally setting their mind to be their best self. So today's guest is somebody who really fits that bill. Jim Harshaw Jr. is an educator by trade and a coach by passion. He's a former Division I All-American wrestler, and we're going to talk about his experience as a wrestler. And we actually have some mutual friends in common. So this is a fun conversation, an exciting conversation. But Jim's also failed. He's been broke, out of shape, and out of balance with his family at times in his career. So he knows what it feels like to lack clarity, focus, and consistency. He knows what it feels like to do 100 things in a day at 100 miles per hour and still get nothing accomplished. So Jim has set out to help others. Uh, He's learned how to recreate the clarity, focus, and consistency of an elite athlete. And today he brings that to his clients as an executive coach. So... I know you're going to love this conversation with Jim, and when you do, if you could share it with others, share it with a friend, send a text or an email and say, hey, I think you'll love this conversation, share it on social media where we have the ability to spread messages that are useful for us, that are helpful for us. Jim has a lot of clarity, and he actually has a system that he uses to help people get to where they want to go. So hopefully that system will be helpful to you as you listen, and if it is, hopefully you'll find it useful enough to share it with others. So... Without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Jim Harshaw Jr. Jim, great to have you on the podcast. I've enjoyed getting to know you a little bit. And Charlie, the Spaniard, I always, he just likes to go by the Spaniard. The Spaniard, yeah. I haven't developed a close enough relationship with Charlie to know, like, (laughs) am I really okay calling you the Spaniard? But 
anyway, Charlie, who's a podcast guest, said, hey, Brian, Jim's doing a lot of the similar stuff that you're up to. He has a podcast. I think you'd like to chat with him. Uh, we also talked before, and you said Teague Moore, who was our first podcast guest. Yeah. You and him used to go at it. Uh, yep. Sounds like when you were kids. And uh, God bless you for going at it with Teague. He is a... <laughs> Uh, he, he is he's small, an animal. But he's got a lot of bite in that. Uh, he does inside that body of his, and uh, he's been just a massive supporter of the work that I've been doing. And uh, for those that don't know, Teague, he's the head coach at American University, and was a national champion wrestler, and uh, just a really passionate guy when it comes to the psychology of wrestling. So anyway, it's cool to connect with you and play a little uh, seven degrees of separation in sports i think it's always fascinating how small the sports community is when you break it yeah no kidding but where i'd love to start with you is to go back to that childhood when you and teague are going at it and what life was like for you growing up in pittsburgh and uh why wrestling and give me a little background on who you were as a kid and and how you came to become you yeah you know you mentioned you know before we started recording you're like man i was a skinny scrawny kid and i wasn't tall you know like why you know people but could have suggested, you know, or maybe did suggest you're know, wrestling. Like, no, man, I'm a basketball player, right? Well, I was that skinny, scrawny kid, man. I was, uh, uh, so I grew up about a half an hour north of Pittsburgh. I'm a country boy, and mom and dad didn't go to college. I was the first person to go to college, and, and wrestling was my way out, right? Where wrestling was my, my ticket, my opportunity. I didn't even know if I was gonna go, going to go to college. Um, you know, had some success in wrestling and, you know, worked really hard in school. So I got good grades and just opened up all these amazing doors. So I got recruited by Ivy Leagues in, in Virginia and uh, ultimately chose Virginia. But so I, you know, I grew up, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a whole lot. We weren't, we, we weren't poor, but we, we certainly didn't have a whole lot. Um, humble beginnings and man, you know, splitting wood and hauling wood year round was a thing that we did, you know, cause we heated our house with a wood stove and, um, just, just work hard, you know, just hardworking family, hardworking people and, um, found wrestling when I was six years old, just a neighbor did it in really in the Pittsburgh area. It's just kind of in the blood. It's in the culture up there and everybody kind of wrestles at some point, you know, it's just what you do. You baseball, football, basketball, wrestling. It's just, those are the four sports. And, um, so I started wrestling and, and I tried baseball, uh, played right baseball, played football is way too small for football, but I tried anyway. And somehow as a meek, mild mannered, quiet, humble, skinny, scrawny kid, somehow wrestling worked for me. It stuck. And about three years into it, I'm like, I started experiencing some success. And, you know, like I mentioned, Teague Moore and I used to, we used to bloody each other up and you, you know, elementary school age wrestling practice. And so, it was, but it was, it was battles like that, that makes you, that make you tough, right? You get tough by doing tough things and practicing with him was, was, was always tough. And, um, so I stuck with it and, you know, had some success through elementary and middle school and into high school. And, and my, my goal in high school was to win the state championship. And, uh, not only did I not win the state championship, I didn't even get on the podium. I didn't even sniff the podium. I mean, I was, uh, just never got close to achieving my goals in high school. But thankfully uh, I had some coaches who saw my potential in me. They, they were the, uh, they were the coaches at the, like the junior national team camps and that sort of thing. And they were, you know, the assistant at UVA, the assistant at Penn, they were the coaches and they're like, okay, this guy, he actually, he's decent. He can't, he, he can't win anything quite yet, but, uh, but he's decent. So those guys recruited me, thankfully. Yeah. It's amazing. I've, I've talked to Teague about wrestling in high school in that area. And 
it prepares you. It sounds like for college because yeah. you're going against the guys who are going to be the best wrestlers in the country, and it's a hard pill to probably swallow because you're expecting to win, but um, losing probably as you said, toughens you up so that you're prepared for the next level. How did that environment and that culture of wrestling help you as you went on to college? Yeah. So a funny story about that. So Teague NCAA champion, um, you know, internet competed in internet internationally for quite a few years after, after college. I mean, he's, he's elite and one of the best in the world. Um, Tig and this guy, Jeremy Hunter, who also went on to be an NCAA champion for Penn State. Jeremy was at Penn State. Tig was at Oklahoma State. Um, these guys, I used to, they were both local. You know, we are all local. And uh, I remember going to these off-season tournaments, and there'd be like nobody there. It'd be like this podunk little tournament on a Saturday afternoon. It's like 50 guys show up, spread amongst all these weight classes. And Tig Moore and Jeremy Hunter are battling each other, right? These two guys who you knew that they were some of the best in the high school wrestlers in the country. Uh, you knew they were going to go on to great things and you'd see that, right? You'd see that just on a regular weekend. And that this, you know, the best of the best were like just battling each other. Right. Uh, steel, you know, steel sharpens steel, iron sharpens iron. And that's, that was the case. And, and so I got to wrestle with those guys too, you know, and, um, you know, wrestling's a sport where, uh, it's physical. You get hurt even if you win, right, you're getting the crap beat out of you just in practice if you're good, let alone bad, you know, and, and but that just becomes a, a normal thing, right? Um, the physical pain that you go through in wrestling, you don't even think, you just kind of realize, like, you just kind of think, like, everybody experiences this kind of stuff in their sport, and, and but they don't, right? And, and, and then especially, and then you go off to college, and I'm like, man, I never even placed in a state championship, so I'm like, I'm a bum, you know? And, uh, and I get to the, I get to UVA and my teammates are two time state champion, three time state champions, and I'm beating them, you know? And I'm like, wow, like what's going on here? How's this working? You always hear how good Pennsylvania wrestling is, but you're in this environment and you don't realize that you're in the environment. And that's, it's the same thing in the real world. Like you have to seek that out. Like as athletes, we, we have that. And I was put into that by default, really just kind of where I was born. Luckily that's where I grew up and I didn't know what I had. Right. But I, I was in this, I call it the environment of excellence. I was in it and living it and benefiting from it. And the benefits didn't show until I actually got outside of it and competed at the next level. And I'm like, Oh, wait a second. I guess, I guess, you know, not getting on the, the podium doesn't really, matter at this level because I was, I was still pretty good. I love that you're talking about this because we hear this in with parenting. Like, should I send my kid up a level? Should I have my kid be the smartest kid in his grade? Or, you know, what do I do with that? And I hear it with athletes too. Like, should we play up? Should we play down? How do you build confidence? Do you have them, you know, beat up on everybody? And I love the word compete. And I think the origins of the word compete are so fascinating. The, uh, it comes from Latin. Capitere was the word in Latin. And capitere meant to strive with or to strive together. And yeah, we often think of competition just as beating somebody. But the competition that you had with Teague and the other wrestlers in your area allowed you to get better and improve so you could get your hand raised more often at another level. And so you guys were actually striving with each other, even though it felt like, I'm sure you wanted to beat those guys, they want to beat you. Sure. But that idea that we are striving with because our best gets brought out when we're challenged, when we're pushed, when we have other people pushing us and we see it 
in the playoffs in sports, you see uh, teams raise their ability to perform because they're playing against the best, or you see pro performance and college performance compared to high school performance. And so there is something to the human experience when we bring competition into the space. And we don't just think about it as my job is to defeat this person. No, like this is how we get into that flow state. This is how we get into the optimal place for us to perform is through that other person. Like, thank you for challenging me. Like, let's go. Tennis is another sport where you see it. You see it when, sure. you know, Roger Federer is playing the 150th guy in the, in the world. Like he's just not probably at his best. But then when you see Federer against Djokovic or Nadal or one of those top guys, you see him come out and play even better because he's striving with that person. So thinking about competition as an opportunity to bring out our best is a really cool way to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you know, in, we need to welcome that. Like, like for the listener listening to this right now, think about your own life. Like think about, think about where you're being challenged or where you're not being challenged. Right. And, and think about the challenge that you're facing is like, this is growth. Like I'm growing, whether I like it or not, you know, maybe I don't want this. Maybe I do want this, but like you're growing, but if it's easy, if you're seeking the easy route, right. You're, um, whether it's at work, you're not challenging yourself, you're not trying to get to that next level or uh, in your health and fitness, if you're just like, yeah, I'm good, you know, I kind of, you know, uh, I go for a walk every once in a while, or I don't, but if you're not really challenging yourself, you're not growing in that area. And maybe you don't want, I mean, everybody has certain areas that they want to grow or they need feel like, you know, everybody knows where they need to grow or in your relationship, right? Are you just kind of drifting? Are you being unintentional or, or, you know, like, like, you know, is, are you being an intentional performer? Um, but you've got to welcome that. You've got to seek that out. If you want to grow in an area, you've got to seek it out because otherwise uh, you stagnate. So I want to go back to your parents and your upbringing. So I got a good sense of the area you grew up in. What were mom and dad doing for a living? Did you have siblings? Give me an idea of what life was like specifically in the Harshaw house. I know you're a junior. So yeah. um, tell me a little bit about what life was like for you in your house. Yeah. So mom and dad grew up in the city of Pittsburgh. Just, just, really blue collar upbringings, um, poor really. And, uh, you know, that's, that's just kind of Pittsburgh. You kind of have that, that image of Pittsburgh people. All right. And, and it's, they're generally tough people. It's kind of a little bit in the culture there, I think. And, and so anyway, that's, those are the kind of people that, that raised me, thankfully, um, just loving, caring, good people, hardworking people, uh, and two older sisters who, uh, so the, the, the oldest sister used to beat me up, right? I was the wrestler and, and my, my sister used to beat me up. And uh, my middle sister, she was my practice partner. So my dad didn't know any wrestling. All we knew, knew was to, to put in uh, videotapes, film and, and watch film. And so, you know, come home from practice, come home from school, pop in a pop in a, an instructional video for wrestling and, and practice moves on my sister, Don. So Michelle was the oldest and, and, uh, she was super athletic and, uh, definitely the smartest of the bunch. And, uh, and then Don, it just, uh, she was, you know, and still is super hardworking, also really, really smart. And, uh, anyway, she was my, uh, she was my, my practice partner. She should have wrestled. Actually, both my sisters should have wrestled. Women's wrestling's exploding right now, exploding. It's an NCAA emerging sport all of a sudden, and it's just growing everywhere. And, uh, man, my sisters would have been tough wrestlers seriously both of them they were they're they're studs you mentioned your older sister being super smart and you mentioned your parents not going to college and then you also mentioned that you had opportunities to go to ivy league schools or uva you end up going to uva so academics i would imagine were something that was valued in your household so i'm curious to learn about what the messaging was from mom and dad 
about academics with you and your sisters um, and, and what that what that looked like for you guys? Yeah, the expectations were were high. Um, you know, they they knew that you know they didn't have the education that they wanted, and they wanted a better what they wanted better lives for us than than they had when they were growing up, and they wanted better lives for their kids and their grandkids. And and man, they provided it right. They just through the guidance and the and the high standards. So they just set high standards for work ethic. I mean, you know, <laughs> I remember I got to UVA and. And I was like, man, these kids are smart, right? These kids are really smart. And the only thing I had to, 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 to keep up was my work ethic, thankfully. And I just had to work. I had to work a lot harder than a lot of those students. But, but I kept up and ended up with you know 3.1 GPA and got two degrees, a master's degree, and, and just had a great experience there. But, um, but they, they definitely just showed us what hard work was. Did they show it or did they talk it? Yeah, both, man. They mostly showed it. <laughs> it was just a standard right? It's just go back to this environment of excellence, you know, talk about the, these guys, the, the wrestlers in the area, like there's just a standard of work ethic, uh, a standard of physicalness that you have to have to, to compete at the level, even in just the, the, the local area. And that's what it was there at home too. It was just this standard that was set of like work. Like my dad was a construction worker, sheet metal worker. Um, literally, Brian, he used to they knew asbestos was bad for you, but it had been kind of covered up for years. And, and this stuff used to, they just would rip it out with their hands, like no gloves, no mask, no anything. Now, if there's like a teeny tiny minuscule piece of asbestos that lands on someone's desk, they like condemn the building. I'm like, not, not even exaggerating. And my dad used to like wipe it out of his nose. It'd be in his, they'd blow his nose and asbestos would come out. And he said, you know, there'd be two inches of asbestos dust on the floor in a construction site. He's like, the wind would blow. They'd put their hands, they'd close their eyes real tight, close their mouth and put their hands over their nose and face just so it didn't get into their eyes because it irritated them. That's the kind of work that he did, you know, whether it was 95, 100 degrees out in the summer or zero degrees in the winter, they're inside, they're, they're outside. Um, inside, obviously it's not hard, but like out there, most of that works outside. And uh, never complained. Many worked night shifts sometimes. And then he'd come home, and we had massive gardens. And he was a worker. I mean, he didn't stop until he just collapsed every night. Woke up, went to work, came home, worked until he collapsed at night. You know, stopped for dinner, and then and then just kept on going. And mom was the same way. You know, her work was different. But my mom split wood. I mean, my mom literally she used to split wood before there were log splitters. Like she she you know split splitting mall and everything. I mean. Um, they lived it. We're going to get to your experience in college and we're going to jump around here a little bit, but I know you have kids. I think you have four kids. That's right. And you're living in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is different than Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, even though Pittsburgh's had this Renaissance yeah. and it's this cool hip place now. Sure. Okay. But it's not, it's different than Charlottesville. Yes, it is. And you're not working as a construction worker. Right. And so I'm curious for you as a father, and I don't know if there's a, a Jim Harshaw the third. No, um, there's not. Jesse James Harshaw, Wyatt Hawk Harshaw, and then Eliana and Isla, two little boys, two little girls. Yeah. So, so as you're looking at your boys and your girls, how important is it that you instill the same work ethic in them, while not going, not not, not to say you're not going to show it. You're going to show it. But there's no, you're not going to have asbestos coming out of your nose. You're not going right. to be, I'm assuming splitting wood and, you know, having, you're not going to see the, the physical toughness that your dad showed you. 
Right. And so I'm curious for you, A, if you think it's important to pass down what you learned from mom and dad, and then B, how do you, if, if it is, how do you pass that down to them without them seeing it the same way that you saw it? Yeah, that's so true, man. Cause yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm not grinding in the same way that my parents did. I, I'm definitely grinding though in a, in a different way. Um, you can call it grinding, you can call it just, just, you know, some people call it hard work. I call it inspired action, right? When you, when you really find what you're, what you're motivated by, it's, it's just inspired action. It's, it's kind of a, kind of a little bit of a fib to, to call it hard work because it's just action, right? It's inspired action. And, um, I love that by the way, that's really cool. Yeah. Thanks. You know, it's, it's like, you know, you know, you, you know, too, it's the same thing. It's like you, 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 you do this work that people go, man, how do you, how do you, how do you do all that work? How do you have time to do all that? It's like, well, I'm inspired to do it. That's why, you know, and, and you're inspired for different reasons. So I love um, Jim. I love that. And you said the word grind earlier and I have an aversion to the word grind because yeah. look, I think your dad, I don't know if he's still with us or not, but he is. He, so he wanted a different life for you. It sounds like, like go get an education. I'm sure he didn't want you having to have asbestos coming out of your nose. Yeah. Amen. That's right. So like, I don't think the goal for us is to grind our way through life. I'm not suggesting that there isn't a time and a period where we certainly have to put our head down and do not sexy stuff and, and do that work. But I love the idea of inspired action because sometimes people say the same thing to me. They're like, how do you have time to do this or that? And the other, I'm like, well, I'm inspired to act on that. In the same way I'm inspired to act on being home for my kids. Like that's, that's a right. part, that's something I am very thoughtful about and care a lot about. And so I create intentional action to try to make that happen. So I love the idea of inspired action. And I, I don't think I've ever heard that before. So um, yeah, so tell me a little bit more about how you show them inspired action and how, yeah. how, how that works out. Yeah, sure. So, you know, we live in this like nice neighborhood with like, two swimming pools, tennis courts, basketball courts, a gym, trails, lakes. It's like a resort, right? And it's like, it's really easy to be soft here, you know? Um, so the way I demonstrate it, and, and it's just, it's in my blood is, is the way I live. You know, I wake up at like between five and five, I woke up at 4.55 this morning, went and did a, a, a workout on the UVA track. Um, and, you know, just a hard, sprint workout and interval workout and you know got home uh, and they know they know i was i'm i'm home and showered before they even wake up you know so and they know that dad's doing that kind of thing um this business that i'm in right now i built this on the side when i was had a full-time job that required nights and weekends and travel uh as a fundraiser at the major gift officer at the university of virginia you know you know shaking hands and kissing babies and, and asking for, you know, ask, looking people nigh and asking for a million dollars. Right. And then on the side, I'm, I'm, I'm building a business where I'm coaching and speaking. And that was uh, man, that was, that was, you know, a lot of inspired action, right? It was waking up early. It was, it was fitting in coaching calls on my lunch break. It was fitting in coaching calls on my commute. Um, just, just fitting every little nook and cranny in my life. You know, I got four kids, I got a crazy job and I'm building a business on the side and I built this thing and they knew, man, they knew that I worked, you know, day and night and worked hard at this thing. And, and, uh, and so, so I demonstrate it, I live it and, and they, and they see that, right. I'm going to do a Spartan race here in a couple of weeks. And so, so I enjoy doing hard things and I seek out hard things and they see that. And, um, and I encourage, if you ask my kids, they know the phrase, I say, how do you get tough? And they'll answer by doing tough things, dad. And that's 
that's the mantra that I plug into their head. Are they wrestling? My boys wrestled, both of them wrestled for about three to five years, one for three, one for five, but they're not wrestling. They have their own sports now, uh, baseball, soccer. Uh, they both play instruments. You know, uh, my girls play, you know, field hockey. My six-year-old, she's just getting started. She's uh, soccer and, you know, uh, gymnastics at that age, but they all have their own sports. None of them are wrestling. Um, but, uh, you know, they each his own. I'm just glad they're engaged in something physical. It's so interesting because this morning I had a conversation. I, I hired a personal trainer recently because for me, I've done so much work on the mental, the emotional. I've done a lot of work on the spiritual side. But physically, I think I've um, never really dedicated myself the way that a college wrestler does. Um, but not even a college wrestler. It's somebody um, who just needs to be healthy and, and fit. And so I was talking to this guy who I, his name's Chris. And he's a big Philly fan. Um, and I don't hold that against him, even though I, <laughs> I probably should. And Chris was saying, I just love the blue collar element of Philly, uh, you know, like the toughness. Yeah, sure. And he was sort of suggesting, he was trying to take a dig at, at Washington, D.C. and say, like, I feel like Washington, <laughs> D.C. is kind of like pretentious. <laughs> and that's a side, it's like a side story, but it's going to bring it back to this idea that I think blue collar is a mindset. I, I think yeah. it is a, it, it doesn't, like I can be blue collared. This is going to sound crazy in a white collar job. Yep. And like, I could still be the guy that like, I'm going to find a way I'm going to keep working hard. I'm going to put my head down. I'm going to have grit. I'm going to be agree. determined. And so I think we make the mistake to think that it's just the person that's chopping wood um, because it's, it's not. And by the way, just because that person's chopping wood doesn't even mean that they are really blue collar. Yeah, right. That's like, right. Just because their job is X doesn't mean that their mindset is Y. So I love this idea of taking blue collar and, and changing how we think about it because I do. I, I look when I, whether it's an underdog or it's somebody who battles or competes and stays with it, like I always look to those people. Those are the people that I love to follow and watch. I'll give you a good example. Like the Washington Nationals are in the World Series, uh, baseball you know, it's not like a blue collar sport in the way that wrestling is. Um, but you watch, Ma you watch Max Scherzer get on the mound. Like that guy, um, I think he's from St. Louis originally, but like he's going to work um, and he's there to do a job and he's going to give it everything he's got. You would say Max is blue collared and Max also is obsessed with analytics and super smart and super thoughtful and articulate. And, you know, there's multiple dimensions, but a part of him is blue collar. Um, so I'd love to hear you sort of think about what it means to be blue collared, especially living in a place like Charlottesville, which is when, when I think of Charlottesville and Charlotte, Charlottesville has been in the news, you know, in the last couple of years, but yeah. when I think of it, I think of UVA as this great academic institution with a lot of brilliant minds and that it's a university town, but it's bigger than that. Um, but there's a lot of smart people in that area. So I would love to hear you riff a little bit on, on that. Yeah. Now, what a, what a great, great point to bring up. And so I, I had this little bit of a dichotomy of, of, my in my life where i'm like i grew up in one one way right this this blue collar you know just didn't have a lot of money and that sort of thing and you know great home everything but come to uva and you know kids are driving at you know suv i'm literally riding my my uh my thrift store mountain bike and my my classmates are driving suvs you know it's like man what where did i what place did i just get transported to right and and 
you know, you, but you see these, these people at UVA who they have what you might call a blue collar mindset. Some of them, not all of them do, right? It, it doesn't really have to do with money. And that's, that's a transformation that I've really had to make throughout my life. Because I kind of grew up thinking that people with money were bad or they, they cheated somehow or they're greedy. And I've come to realize that like, you can, you can be greedy and cheat and it, it has nothing to do with how much money you have, your wealth, right? It's, it's a more of a mindset. But, um, but I've, I, I, so I came to UVA had, and I, I've had to make this shift and understand like, okay, like you can be a grinder, you can work hard, you can call it inspired action, whatever you want to call. Like those people, they're, they're here regardless of, of wealth, right? They're here at UVA and they're at every other university in town in the country. So I'll give you an example. One of my friends, his father grew up with, they have a lot of money. I mean, just a lot of, they've, they've given millions and millions of dollars to the university. And because of you, right? <laughs> because of me, all because of me, partially because of me, actually. Yeah, but, but, your uh, job. yeah, right. Um, and they, he, he is such a well balanced, hard worker. You know, you might use the word grinder. I know you, you know, that aversion to that word, but like, this is like, he, what, what may, you know, the listener might think of is that person, like, that's him. Like, he grew up, he had everything he didn't want for anything, right? He had everything that he needed. Uh, love and everything else, like the stuff. But he's a worker, man. He works and he earns it. And and I love that about him and, and about how this individual raised all of his kids to be that way. And I really look up to that. I go, that that's that's impressive because you know I don't have a fraction of the money that he has, and I can raise my kids to be really soft because they could be right in our nice little quiet neighborhood and nothing would ever have to be hard for them. And, but he having all the things in the world, he raises kids to be, to be tough. Right. And so I really respect that UVA's basketball team just won the national championship. They have a blue collar mentality. I mean, they work defense is their key to success. Defense isn't fun. Defense is hard. It takes more focus. It takes more energy. And that's what, that's what they've all bought into. Our football program is just an amazing turnaround. It's been a pretty struggling football program for a lot of years. And the program's back on track now. They have a blue-collar mentality. These are the same students, but blue-collar mentality. And it's about work. It's about, are you willing to have the grit? Are you willing to get punched in the face and get back up and try again? Are you willing to outwork your opponent? Yeah, I love what you're talking about. I I grew up uh, in a really nice area outside of Washington D.C. You know, my dad worked for himself, uh, created a business, and you know, I, I saw people that did not have a work ethic. But for me, and my brothers, it was instilled in us. And um, you know, I think my parents were very intentional about how they instilled that in us. And I'm thinking even about like the Stephen Curry's of the world, right? Like Stephen, his dad played in the NBA. He didn't have to play in the NBA. I was right. told by a lot of different places that he's not good enough. And like Steph just keeps going. Or even like Malcolm Brogdon, who played at UVA. Yeah, and right. uh, I had on this podcast, like Malcolm, super smart family. They're lawyers. They're, he comes from this incredible family. Malcolm's one of the hardest working guys I've ever been around. And sure. so like I... I I don't think there's a correlation there. And I think those guys would probably say that, yeah, they've got some blue collar or think about like Peyton Manning, like Peyton Manning, 
you know, his dad played in the NFL and look at, look at what Peyton did to prepare and get himself ready and to keep going or look at heck. And then you look at guys who make it right. And take a Tom Brady, like he's already got everything. Well, he's still approaching things a certain way. So I think sports does a good job of showing us the mindset uh, and, and not necessarily always the environment that you grew up in. Certainly the environment it had a lot to do with you becoming a wrestler, but and wrestling also creates, I mean, we can get into wrestling and I'd love to get into it with you because I, I didn't know anything about wrestling until I got introduced to Teague and I started working with American University's wrestling team. But wrestling does have this culture. You can't not work hard in wrestling. There is no way around it. You can't, you literally cannot because you will be above the weight that you need to be to be able to wrestle. It's almost like illegal to not work hard. So maybe that's a good transition for us. Talk about your experience at UVA and what it was like for you to wrestle at that level um, and what your experience was like uh, wrestling yeah. there. So I show up uh, part of the top 10 recruiting class in the country, uh, state champions, Pennsylvania state champions, multiple nine state champions from all over, all over the country. And probably would have been ranked higher, actually, if I wasn't there. Um, but I definitely wasn't a reason why we were one of the best recruiting classes in the country that I came in with. And I remember, literally, I remember walking home like late at night, one night on my freshman year, and two of the guys were kind of like walking over to like, we were splitting up, kind of going back to our dorm rooms. And I overheard two guys talking about how they were going to be all Americans and national champions. And I'm like, and I literally remember thinking, man, I'm jealous of those guys because they're good and I'm not. And, and thankfully two years, so, but I was a hard worker, right? So I just, I just did what I knew how to do. I just worked hard. I redshirted my freshman year and had a so-so season the next year and actually qualified for the national championships as a freshman. I was like, holy cow, I actually beat a two-time Pennsylvania state champion who was a senior from NC state. I actually knocked him off. I'm like, man, I just beat a two-time Pennsylvania champ. Like, like, Hey Jim, hey Jim yeah. freshman year, you're red shirting. So for those that don't know in college, you can take a red shirt, which means that you're not going to compete in the events with the team, but there's always other events that you can go and compete in. But you're basically taking that year off from competing for the team. That's right. And you get five years to do four years of competition. So I took that first year off basically. Of, so yeah. walk people through what were you doing to get better that freshman year? Because uh, it sounds like you go from walking next to those two guys where it's like, I don't see myself doing that. And then the very next year you're in competition to do that. So what, what did you do that freshman year when you were basically all about training? I would imagine. Man, Brian, you're really good at this. Is uh, this is good? I don't know that I've dissected this so much. This is really important part of my story. Now that I think about it, is I just did the only thing that I knew how to do, and that was work. Just work. I just I wrestled a lot of matches. I got to every tournament that I could go. I had, now we had to pay on our own dime, like you said. That red shirt year, you can't compete for the team, and the school can't pay in any of your way. So there's in wrestling. Like in some individual sports, there are these open tournaments, these open competitions where anybody can sign up, you know, enroll and, and, and sign up and register and compete. So, um, so I went to a, a lot of those and I got like 30 matches in. And then after the season was over, I competed in the, the off-season stuff, which is like the Olympic level, Olympic-style stuff, freestyle, Greco-Roman, which are competed in the Olympics. Just, I, just rest, I just wrestled and worked. Did you love and, it? Did you love it your freshman year? Because you're not getting the fulfillment of 
you know, helping the team succeed. You're, you're just, it sounds like it's almost like pure wrestling. Like that's what you're doing. Did you love that? You know, it's, that's such a great question. I did love it, but I fell out of love with it. And you know how I fell out of, I, I loved it my freshman year. And I, 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 my, that freshman year when I redshirted, and then my next year, which was my second year in college, but my, they call it the red shirt. I was a red shirt freshman. So I'd already redshirted second year in school. Now I've got my four years in a row. I'm going to compete. And the first year of competition, uh, I loved it still. Cause I had no bullseye on my back. I was nobody. And I knocked off some pretty good guys qualify for the national championships. Didn't do, didn't do well at the national championships, but all of a sudden going into my, the next year, my sophomore year of competition, I'm a marked man. I'm ranked 16th in the country. And, and now like the pressure's on and, and I'm, and I started feeling that pressure of like, Oh, now you're supposed to win. Now you're supposed to win at this level. And I just plateaued. I plateaued at that level until I got a coach, this one assistant coach who got in my ear and convinced me that I was, I was going to be great. And I, the, my very first memory of him, his name is John McGovern was in the weight room and he had just gotten hired as our new assistant coach. And I'm doing low rows. I'm sitting in a machine, pulling the, pulling the bar to my stomach, you know, doing low rows. And I finished my set of 10 or 12, whatever, how many reps I was supposed to do. And he goes, sit down. And I sat down and he pulled the pin and dropped it down about eight blocks. And he said, now do them. <laughs> and then I did them and I did the same number of reps. I'm like, Oh, okay. That's what, that's what hard work is. <laughs> right. Like I was a hard worker already. Like he just like raised the bar for me, right. This environment of excellence we talked about like this, this is the new standard now. This is what he's expect. Okay. So, all right. And now this guy started to tell me that I could be great, that I could win the national championship. And so he planted the seed in my head that I could be somebody that I didn't, never thought that I could be. And, um, and so, but, but I still, I wasn't as in love with the sport as I had been that, that first year when there was just no pressure and I was just competing. It was fun. You know, it was no pressure. I was just going out and beating people that I wasn't supposed to beat. And, and I'd love to take you through this part of the story because that second year I'm like, okay, I'm going to be an all American top eight in the country. It's all American. I'm going to be an all American, go to the national championships, fail. My third year in college, my junior year, essentially, same thing, man. I'm going to be an All-American. I'm going to be a national champion. I'm setting my goals really high. And I fail again. And at this point, after my junior year, I'm in the locker room with my face buried in a towel in tears thinking, why can't I do this? Am I destined to be a hard worker who is kind of good? Everybody knows he's good, but he never achieves anything. I didn't achieve anything in high school. And here I am. I got one year left in college. I keep setting these goals and I keep failing. Like, what's wrong with me? Like, am I not good enough? Am I not smart enough? Do I not have it? Whatever that it is, right? And I just had that overwhelming self-doubt thinking, you know, I can't run more miles. I can't lift more weights. I can't watch more film. There's just not enough hours in the day. There's no more. Like, Jim cannot do any more. So my, my mission that off-season, because I got, one, I got one shot left at this, Brian, my whole mission that off season was figure out what you're missing. Like maybe you're not strong enough. Maybe you need more flexibility. Maybe you need more conditioning. Maybe you need more, you know, better positioning in, in top position, bottom position, finishing shots, setting up shots, hand fighting, whatever, like all these different things. 
And that was my mission all summer. And so I went from wrestling camp to wrestling camp to wrestling camp all across the East Coast, Naval Academy, George Mason, Clarion University, um, University of Virginia, like all worked all the summer camps just so I can get around the like Olympians that they would bring in to like, you know, help run, you know, t- teach and be clinicians at the camps. And I ask every one of them, like, what am I missing? Like, what's like, what's the one thing, right? And all summer long, I, I'm seeking and seeking and seeking and, and summer ends, rolls into the school year. Before you know it, the wrestling season's here and it's literally the night before the first competition. It's the night before the West Virginia Open. And I'm sitting in the hotel room and I go, oh, you never found it, Jim. You never found the secret. Like you never figured out the missing piece. So you're destined to be whatever you're going to be. That's it. You know? So I gave up literally at that moment, Brian, I gave up on my goals. I didn't give up on the process. I said, I'm going to still work. I'm going to do everything in my power that I can possibly do. But whatever the outcome is, I'm going to be able to put my head on the pillow at night and just be okay with that outcome. Because you know what, Jim, you've done all this work. You've competed for 17 years. You competed overseas. You competed. You did everything you possibly can from nutrition to diet, to rehabbing injuries, to training, to you name it, you did it. And you're going to keep doing it all season. But you know what? Give up on the goal because that may or may not be in the cards. You can't control that. All you can control is what you do. Brian, that changed everything. As you know, you're in sports psychology. You know, that's the mindset. Like, that's the trick. Let go of the outcome. Focus on the process. I went, woke up the next morning. I went 5-0, and won the championship, and I had so much fun. I was like, wow, this is, this is kind of fun to wrestle like this, right? With no pressure. Just go out and be your best. Compete at your maximum capacity. Maximum capacity of everything you can do. Do that right? If you go out of bounds, run back to the center and beat the guy to the starting line, right? If you get taken down, explode back to your feet and try to get your one point escape as quickly as possible. If you take, if you get the takedown, try to put him on his back as quickly. That's what you can do. That's all you can do. You know, when it's the night before, go to sleep at the right time. When it's the day of weigh-ins, put the right food in your body, right? That's what you can do. So I focused on that process. So I go through that year and I'm having so much fun all season long, just bat- enjoying the battle, enjoying the, 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 gr- the battle of just like s- stepping on the mat and beating the crap out of each other, right? Get the ACC championships, win the ACC championship, get the national championships, and I win several matches. And now I'm on the brink of actually becoming like achieving something meaningful in my career. 17 years comes down to seven minutes. Now I'm looking across the mat at the number four ranked wrestler in the country on the number one ranked team in the country, Minnesota. And I've never beaten anybody ranked in the top five in America ever before. Now I'm, now I'm staring at this guy and, and my career in terms of paper on paper really is on the line, right? Either I'm, if I win, I'm an all American. If I lose, I'm just a guy who kind of was pretty good for a while, but never really achieved anything meaningful. And I stepped on the, I towed the line and actually before the match, I, I knew that I had to wrestle these demons of like pressure and I said, okay, I've, I've got to just focus on the process, enjoy the opportunity, be grateful for this blessing to be able to step on the mat. And I told my coach, my assistant coach, Brendan Buckley, I said, I said, you need to have a joke ready for me. I said, you need to make me smile. Literally, when I'm on the mat, when I strap on my headgear and I'm about to step onto the mat, you need to make me laugh. And he did. He had a joke. And he told me a joke. <laughs> and I chuckled as I stepped to the mat in the biggest match of my career, went out, dominated the guy, had a great match. 
And, uh, and I'm, I finally, finally did it. I was an all American. Right. And I finally broke through and, and I realized that it was because I let go of the outcome and I focused on the process. It's awesome. Do you go to the, uh, NCAA, uh, tournament every year? Every year. Yeah. It's Mecca for wrestling fans. You remember a couple of years ago, David Terrell from American yeah. University? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was so fun to watch him. So David, he actually was a wild card invite into, That's right. into the tournament because he struggled at EIWA, as they call right. it. Yeah. And David went to Madison Square Garden. And David, shout out to David. What a great soul David is. And uh, That whole arena was cheering for that kid, man. And they're cheering for 15, him. 15,000 people. Yeah, because A, he has a flair. He's from Hawaii and, um, you know, does things that other wrestlers don't do. I think he has a background in, in judo or jujitsu or, yeah, that's uh, right. you know, so he can do like flips and all kinds of crazy stuff. But David was unexpected and Americans, not the powerhouse that some of the schools that he was wrestling against were. And he was his underdog, but you know, David and I talked about the experience and one of the things he, he almost didn't get it. And so he was so grateful for the opportunity and just wanted to wrestle with joy. And he knows his last shot to become an all American and he had a bunch of upsets that tournament and almost made it to uh, the finals. And, yeah. uh, but David said, you know, before the match, he looked over at his opponent when he had his big upset and he could see the guy was so tense and so tight. And so, and David was just like, you know, he tapped into his Hawaiian spirit and uh, was like, all right, I'm going to go out there and have fun. And you could so, absolutely see it for the listener. Just like, like think like you, I could, you could see it. You could feel it. This kid was wide open and he was enjoying the process, enjoying the moment and wrestling. Like you said, with joy competing with joy. I get, I get chills talking about it because he got a standing ovation from the crowd at Madison square sure garden. Did. He, uh, he didn't win. He didn't, he didn't win the national championship, but he was so fulfilled. And to watch him, you know, same thing, his senior year, he did everything right, everything. Then he lost and he needed a little bit of fortune, but also his resume is why he got that, that spot in the NCAA tournament. Sure. But he, he was intentional about how he wanted to show up to Madison Square Garden. It wasn't like he was just like, oh, Oh, I got nothing to lose. I'm just going to do it. All shucks. It was like, no, like, let's go out there, have fun, enjoy it. Like it's one last ride. Let's do it. And that's a decision and that's a choice. And I was so happy for David because he intentionally stepped into his best self and his authentic self. He leveraged that. And that's not to say there aren't other people that need to be intense and need to be like, this is a matter of life and death. And that might be what helps them. And sure. it, it's interesting when it comes to goal setting, because some people really do need to have that vision and really need to see themselves on that podium and really like focus on that. And others need to be like, ah, it, we'll see what happens. And you see it a lot of times with religion and faith playing a role for athletes where, you know, they'll, they'll train and then they'll leave it in God's hands. And you'll even hear them talk about it. It's like, yeah, now it's right. in God's hands. Um, but one thing I do believe is that we do need to have that freedom to be our best when we, when our best calls for that. And so it sounds like you were able to tap into that senior year and then take advantage of a moment and, and capitalize on it, which is, which is so cool. Yeah. And for the listener, like, how do you make this relevant for your life? If you're competing in sports, obviously, obviously the, the connection is, is apparent to you right now, but if you're not, Think about, think about the, the next sales presentation you have to make or the next job interview or the next conversation with your boss. The, ne the next thing where, where like it's on the line, like you're nervous and it's on the line, like let go, 
let go, focus on what you can control. You can't control. I always tell young listeners, like you don't control if you win or lose, like you don't control it. You can, matter of fact, my last week's podcast was on this, on focusing on the process, not the outcome. And I said, you can, like I said earlier, you know, you focus, you, you can control what you eat. You can control how you warm up. You can control what time you go to bed. You can control, you know, the words that you say to yourself. You can control, oh, this is what you control. You don't control the referee. You don't control your opponent. You don't control, you don't control all those things. So focus on what you can control. And it's the same thing if it's a job interview or a conversation with your boss or a sales presentation or whatever it is. So focus on that process. I love it. And so you have a good experience of wrestling. You, you accomplish what you want to accomplish. And then you decide to get into coaching. What, why, why were you thinking, oh, you, you know, let's go into coaching, especially, did you get your master's while you were wrestling your fifth year? Or what, I did. What, yeah. So you've got a master's from UVA. I mean, there's worse places to get a master's. I don't know <laughs> what your master's is in, yeah. but why, why decide to then take that great education and and go become a coach. Nothing against being a coach, but I'm just curious sure. why you went to why you went that path and that route. Yeah, yeah. So I got my master's in teaching. I thought I was going to be a high school science teacher and a coach my whole career, and that was kind of my intention. But I took a year off and I traveled. I traveled, you know, backpacked through Central America and Europe, and and uh, led adventure camping tours, traveling all over the country. I just needed that year of like just sowing my oats a little bit. And I and I got a phone call from my old coach, and he's like Lenny Bernstein. He said, "Hey, Jim, you know." Uh, we need to hire an assistant. The other assistant just got a head coaching job. Uh, would you join me? And I said, yeah, let's do it. So that's, that was the, my entree into coaching, uh, coach for a few years and then got a, got the head coaching job at, at the, at Slippery Rock University. I was the youngest division one head wrestling coach in the country at the time. And, uh, but why, you know, you, you get influenced by, by these great coaches that you have and you see the difference that they make on your life. And you're just like, yeah, I want to do that. And I'm back in that. I'm so thankful that I'm back in that now. And I'm not coaching sports, but I'm coaching people and their lives. And there's so much more on the line, right? There's marriages on the line. There's health like on the line. There's people's jobs and livelihoods on the line. Like that's what I do now. And, and so that's, that's why I got into coaching in the first place. I go back to that assistant coach when you were on the rowing machine who saw you and saw you differently than how you saw yourself at that moment. And I go back in my life and there were people along the way who saw me in a way that I don't think I saw myself. And even today, I, I hear it from people sometimes that they see me differently than how I see myself. And that's such a gift that we can give to people, whether we're coaching or not. It doesn't really matter if you're managing somebody or if you're a parent, uh, whatever your role is in this world, like seeing people more than they see themselves and, and realizing yes. it and sharing it. Man, what a gift. Because if, if that assistant coach hadn't seen you that way, who knows where you would have gone. And um, that's right. So I think, so you get into coaching with the idea that you can see people a certain way. What was the experience like going pretty quickly to wrestler, to coach? Um, and even sooner after that, you were the youngest head coach in the country in, in wrestling at 26, uh, you know, coaching a D1 program. What was coaching wrestling like for you? Man, I loved it. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I loved being on the mat. Wrestling's a sport where as an assistant coach or even a head coach, like you actually wrestle with the guys. You're actually doing it. You're right. You know, football players aren't out there, you know, strapping on the, the helmet and, and, and banging heads, but like wrestling coaches, that's what you do. And I love that, um, that really hands on and, and just being part of the process still and loved it as an assistant. And then when you become a head coach, I'm just so really thankful to have experienced this transition where you're an assistant coach, you know, everything. 
you know, if you were running the program, this is how, this is how I would do it. And then you become a head coach. You go, Oh, oh, okay. I guess, I guess it's not that easy. <laughs> there's more to this decision, right? Everything comes back on me if things go wrong or, or, you know, there's, there's more factors you have to take into account whenever you make decisions here. Right. So, um, so I loved it and, you know, loved, loved every process of it, but, but it was, it's an all consuming profession. And I really give kudos to people who can do it full time and really, you know, maintain their relationships and maintain balance in their life. That, that is a hard thing to do. And I was young and dumb, you know, youngest division one head wrestling coach in the country. That just means you're not ready. <laughs> That's basically what it meant for me. Some, there were some people who thought I was ready and I'm really grateful for that and grateful I had the opportunity. I wasn't ready. I mean, I look back at some of the decisions I made and I'm just like, what was I thinking? What was I thinking when I said this or, or did this thing? And, um, I think it did okay. You know, it did okay. It was put in that position for a reason, but, but man, there was just uh, so much learning that happened there uh, from going from assistant to a head coach. And then that time as a head coach. Um, but I, I loved it, you know, but I was in the office until nine o'clock at night on recruiting calls, you know, making recruiting calls that doesn't work when you get married right? That doesn't work when you're trying to maintain your relationship. And, and we were an underfunded program, which doesn't mean the expectations are any less. It just means you got to work harder, right? So people are like, oh, you're just, you know, smaller school. It's like not as hard. It's like, yeah, no, it has nothing to do with the size of the school, the pressure, the expectations, they're all there. And let's face it, you know, anybody who's in that profession, they're their expectations that they're expecting are, are they're harder on themselves than they are than anybody else could be. So, um, but I love that process, really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the people I got to work with and got to meet and then, um, realized that this is, this is not what I want for my life and for my career. So that's when I made a switch. And is that when you then went over to UVA and, and started working in, in that Role. Yeah. So I, I actually found an opportunity to get back to Charlottesville. Actually, that opportunity found me. It's funny how that happens, right? So my wife and I are like, man, how do we get back to Charlottesville? We go back there someday if we, we could. And then that opportunity found me, moved back to Charlottesville in a, actually took a pay raise, significant pay raise to be uh, the, a, a full-time executive director of the wrestling club. And basically who, you know, we had the Olympic coach was on our staff. I was his boss, um, two Olympic level athletes who were, uh, who were also on staff Basically, I was their boss running this club and, um, um, love that. Did that for a few years, started a business on the side. And that's kind of when the transition out of coaching happened, um, started this business and that grew and, and kind of ended up going full-time in that business. And so that business being what you're up to now? So no, that's so this is the, the, the story is long and it's a long winding road. So started that first business. It was just like window cleaning business. You started that on the side, ended up growing that had 10 employees and three crews. And I just had a home office. I ran it out of and uh, had a, a virtual assistant. Actually, I had this really thing, this thing really humming. And uh, this virtual assistant, she was in St. Louis. Uh, she had the company phone. So, you know, if you look us up in the phone book or on the internet and you dial the number, she would answer. Uh, she's out in St. Louis. So she would take, she would answer all the calls and handle the crews and do the invoicing and all that stuff. And I just kind of ran things, right? I just kind of did the, you know, customer interface and that sort of thing. Um, so Mom, I'm just curious, how did you even decide to do that? I mean, yeah. so, you, so you moved back to Charlottesville to have this opportunity to run this wrestling club. And then on the side, you decide to start your own business. I, why? Like what was, what even went into that? 
I've always had an entrepreneurial streak in me. I always thought, man, it'd be cool to own your own business, right? And just to be in charge of your own destiny. And a friend pointed out, pointed out he's this, this friend of mine who has made a lot of money. He owns several businesses, small businesses. And he's like, Jim, I'm going to start a window cleaning business. But if you want to, I'll let you do it. I'll back off. And uh, he's like, look, he's like, drive around town. Every single home, every single business, they all have windows. <laughs> and there were like two window cleaning businesses in the, in the town at the time. And he's like, this is, you know, it should be, you know, relatively easy business to start. And I'm like, okay, you know, and everything's harder than, than it is from the, you know, than you think it's going to be. And, uh, but I started the business, grew that thing over the about three years. And, um, and yeah, that was a fun, huge learning experience for me. Just, you know, hiring employees, starting a business, learning marketing and advertising, and then creating systems so that business could operate even if I wasn't there. Um, so yeah, we started, we got into window cleaning and then pressure washing. And then, uh, we actually hung in uh, professional, like commercial grade Christmas lights, um, got what our cleaning, just kind what of service. What happened with the business? Sold it. Uh, matter of fact, I partnered with that original individual, uh, and then eventually just had him buy me out and, and cause I had started a second business on the side of that. So he bought me out and then I moved into this other business and I raised some, uh, some angel capital. And actually, so at this point, so I raised, raised some money with this from, from, uh, uh, another individual an entrepreneur in town. And, and we built, I built essentially this software. I didn't build, I actually had an offshore, um, development team in India who, who built this thing. And I kind of guided them and we built this software aimed at helping small, like grassroots sports teams, engage their fans, educate their, their, their community, and ultimately, you know, get more people to buy tickets and raise more money, you know, just tell their message, making it simple and quick and easy for them to, to share their message and making it easy to take one message and just, you send it to one place and boom, it just goes to Facebook. It goes to Twitter, goes to, um, at that time it was just Facebook and Twitter we went to. And then, uh, I had updated your website cause most of these high school and youth club programs, they don't have a, a website that they update on any regular basis. So we would update that. We would, it would send out text alerts to anybody who's subscribed to that team's text alerts. Uh, and it would send out a mass email once a week with kind of a compilation. So it was kind of this one-stop thing. And um, yeah, so I built that. Um, and I was like, man, Brian, I was like, this is the business. This is the business that's going to like set us up, my family up forever. Like, this is it. This is the thing, you know? So I put my head down and I did the only thing I knew how to do, which was work. And I worked. And I worked and I worked for two years and I finally lifted my head up and I looked around and I said, Oh my goodness, everything I'm trying to create in my life, I'm doing the opposite. I was, no, had a broken relationship with my wife. We weren't spending enough time together. I wasn't spending enough time with my kids. Uh, we were broke. Business was broke and out of money. Um, I was in the worst physical shape of my life. And it was a pretty dark time for me, to be honest. You know, it was like, you know, I remember literally as I was closing down the business, uh, I was sitting on my couch with my laptop on my lap, scrolling through Craigslist past jobs for like unpaid internships and paper boys, you know, and going like, wait a second, I got two degrees from UVA. You know, it was the number one public school in the country at the time. And, and it was like two or three now, but like, and, uh, probably because I think, because I went there, I got knocked down a couple notches. Um, you know, all American athlete, Olympic hopeful, trained at the OT Olympic training center, you know, youngest division one head coach in the country, started my first business. And that was a success. Everything's supposed to be like happily ever after for me. Right. But here I am 
in this dark, dark place. And I closed the lid on my computer that night. I walked up the steps and, and I lay down next to my wife in bed and she's already asleep and I'm staring at the ceiling in the dark thinking like, I felt this before. I felt this as an athlete. And, and as an athlete, you know, throughout my career, I had gone through failures and setbacks and obstacles and hurdles. And I said, what was in place in my life back when I was competing that allowed me to perform at an elite level that's not in place in my life now? And literally, it was like this, this camera lens, like just coming into focus. And I realized like, oh my goodness, there's like a system, there's like a framework that was in place in my life that I don't have now. And I realized that, and, and we can get into that in a second, but I, so I said, let me, let me try putting this back together in my life. And so I did. So I put this system in place in my life. And over the next two years, everything changed. Like I got my relationship back, fixed my relationship with my wife, started spending more time with the kids. I ran a half marathon. So I got fit and healthy again, tripled my income over the next several years. Like everything changed. And, and through this process, I, I, when I, as things were changing, I, I'd gotten to do this TEDx talk called why I teach my children to fail. And then I, um, I started this podcast called success through failure. And I started interviewing these like astronauts and billionaire investors and New York times, bestselling authors and elite athletes and saying like, and, and, and I discovered like this system isn't a gym thing. It's like, this is like this, this universal system that's in place in, in the lives of anybody who's performing at an elite level. I said, I wonder if, wonder if I can share this. And so I put together a curriculum and I started teaching it and people were getting like amazing results. I'll be honest, Brian, I was getting results from people. And I'm just like, I was blown away. I knew it worked, but I didn't like realize it was going to be a magic bullet for, for certain people. And it just, it's been amazing. And, and so I've, I've really doubled down on that curriculum, really expanded it. Um, sat down with some other people who I really respect mentors of mine and really crafted this thing. And, and that's what I do. That's what I teach. I've just built it out, I built it out into a nine week curriculum and it all came from, from failure. Right. And then, and then reflecting back on what did I do? You know, what was working when I was performing at an elite level? What do others do when they're performing at an elite level? And how can I replicate that into the world now? And um, what are, that's what led me to this. Awesome. What are some of the mechanics or fundamentals of the, I think you call this the reveal your path system. Yeah. That's talk, right. about, talk about it a bit. Yeah. So the reveal your path system is this. So when I realized when I was competing, I knew what I valued. I was very clear on my core values. Like I maybe couldn't have stated them as actual, like a list of core values, like I can now, but I knew that like, I wanted to be like those Olympians and national champions who are my coaches and my mentors. So like they were tough. They lived disciplined lives. They were respected. They often went on to success after the sport. Like that's who I wanted to be. And that's what I valued. And so, okay, so that was my, that's what I valued. I knew what I valued then. I don't really know. I kind of have an idea what I value now, but I'm like not like rock solid on it right now, you know, when I was in this dark place. And then the second piece was this, it's four steps. So the second piece was I had, when I was competing, not only did I have goals, we all know we have to have goals, but my goals were in alignment with what I valued. That my goals were not in alignment like in the real world. We align our goals with what's parked in our neighbor's driveway. We align our goals with what we see on social media. We align our goals with what mass media tells us that we want. And that's why people say they feel out of balance. That's why people say they feel out of alignment. And, but when you look at elite athletes, like 
you have their values and their goals, they're like perfect harmony. They're, they're aligned. Right. And so yeah. I help people do that. Yeah. And where they run into trouble is they, it's clear what they want professionally, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's clear in the other areas. Bingo. And you mentioned like when you were a head coach and I see it all the time in the sports world, it's just a lifestyle that's not that conducive to getting what you might want at your home life. That's right. Or, or what your partner might want. And so it's, I, I think it's really cool what you're talking about because I'm sure you're taking like this idea of, I know exactly what I want in the vision. So you talk about values. Now you're talking about vision. Like this is what I want. And I find so often when I work with clients in and outside of sports, uh, a lot of executives, CEOs, people that own their own companies, I'll ask them like, what do you want? And they'll describe it. And I'm like, okay, well, what are the actions you need to take to get you what you want? And it's amazing because we often don't really spend the time to think about what we want. And I know for me personally, like one of the things I don't want is to be on the road all the time working with organizations. And I'm good with traveling some. I'm traveling in a, in a week. Um, like I don't mind traveling a little bit, but if my job is going to take me to LA to work with a pro basketball team out there and I'm going to be there every day, it's just not a possibility for me because it's not in alignment with what I value and what I really want. And so I think you're, the first two are really helpful because it's, it's the idea of I, I know what I value and I know what my vision is and how do I align those two. Uh, and I'm curious to hear what the other two steps are. And I'll just, I'll just piggyback real quickly before I get into the last two steps. Like athletes have a single-minded focus, mm, right? Very. That's like you, like you said, you know, they have that single-minded focus and that kind of works. You know, if you're an elite athlete, if you're trying to be a world champion, trying to be the best in the world of what you do, you kind of have to have that single-minded focus for the it, most part, right? It, it works until it doesn't. And I'll sure. use Kobe Bryant as a really good example. Like I think Kobe is one of the most obsessed mentally tough athletes of all time, but he also cheated on his spouse and got accused of sexual assault. And right. we, we forget about that, but you know, he had to still have that single-minded obsessiveness while also raising his daughters and, and repairing his marriage. And I think what he went through was a real wake up call for him um, that he had to be, um, he could still have the obsessiveness and do the deep work, but not at the expense of what he cared about. And uh, I don't know him, so this is speaking a little bit on assumptions and from studying him. But I, th I, I'm of the opinion you can have it all. I really am, and I think I agree. Like you can be obsessed with your craft and be a lead and be great. And there are definitely dark sides to pursuing that, and there are things that you have to be aware of and create tripwires for. But I don't think it's an either or. I think it really can become an and. I will say it is difficult for people that are not their own boss because they don't get like they don't get to decide. Let's take an athlete and just use that like where they are. Um, but you'll, you're seeing now. So the, we talked about the Nationals earlier. Their closer, this guy uh, Daniel Hudson who missed game one of the National League champion because he wanted to be there for the birth of his daughter. And there was a whole debate that was fascinating to listen to and to yeah. observe because if you just have a singular focus, you're there for that game. That's what you've been working your career for. But he had the mindfulness and the awareness and um, I'll, I'll use the word courage to say, you know what? 
what's best for me and my family is to be there for that birth. And um, anyway, I, I think, I think it's fascinating. You see Andrew Luck, uh, you know, walk away from football because it's not in alignment with what he values right That's now. Right. And so I do think you have to at times get to a certain place to free yourself up to make those decisions because the reality is we do live in a world where um, things matter. But the goal, if you're in a position where you can make those choices, like you should be able to make those choices. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and you know, that single-minded focus, like you said, it, it, it kind of worked. It, it, it kind of doesn't really for athletes and it certainly doesn't out in the real world. Right. When, you know, you're trying to manage, you know, kids and a job and your own physical fitness and, and all those things like life pulls at you. Right. So you have to have this clarity in these different areas of your life, right? These clear goals that are actually meaningful to you. And so those are the kind of first two steps. And then the last two things that were in place was, you know, when I was competing, like I had certainly had a coach, uh, I had teammates who held me accountable. I was accountable to them. They were accountable to me. I had nutritionists, sports psychologists, you know, strength and conditioning coach, athletic trainers, all of these people were in my life. Right. And it wasn't just the people, uh, I call this the environment of excellence and it's not just people. It's people, uh, it's things like media, like what's the media that you allow into your life or filter out of your life. Like when I was competing, I didn't watch TV that much, but when I did, I was watching the world championships or the national championships. I was breaking down film on my opponents or breaking down film on myself. Like that was the media right? That I filtered into my life. I, I had a positive mindset audio that I would listen to on my Walkman at night, you know, the old Walkman uh, with the audio cassette tape, but I had a positive mindset. Right? That's what the, that was the media that I allowed into my life. Like your, your environment of excellence is also includes like your speech, your self-talk, your mantra. Like what are you, what are the words you're saying to yourself? Like your internal environment. So, so that's the third piece that I had this environment of excellence. And then it's nice to do all that work right? If I stopped right there with my clients, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work because when, you know, we look at elite athletes and, and they have all of those things, right? They know what they value. They have goals that align with those values. They have this environment of excellence, but if they don't have the last piece, it doesn't work. And, and I certainly didn't have this in my, in my life. then. it was this plan for follow through. Like, when you're an athlete, like when I was competing, there was a plan for follow through for me because, you know, coach had built the schedule and, and I had to be where I had to be. Like if I lost a match on Saturday night, I'll see you at the team lift tomorrow, Jim, Sunday morning. You got to be there, right? There's a requirement to be there. Um, my scholarship was dependent on it. Like you have to have a, a plan to follow through. And in the real world, like kids get sick, cars break down, you get a new project dumped on your desk at work. And like, how do you actually follow through on these goals when those things happen? Well, you have to have things in place, right? Cause I, I talked to somebody recently. I'm like, Hey man, like, tell me about your goals. He's like, you know what? I just set my goals like a few weeks ago. Let me, hold on. Let me pull up my phone. I can't, I don't remember what they are. What do you mean you don't remember what they are? They're your goals, right? Um, so you have to have a plan to have these things in front of you. And, and, the way that I coach my clients, it's just, this is just like tactical stuff. It's like, you know, we put their goals on a Google Doc and we put that link in a Google Doc into their calendar. So it recurs on the first Monday of every month at 8 a.m., boom, there's a reminder, review your goals. And you've got to go through once a month and add it, edit, update, change any action, action items, change any deadlines, that sort of thing. Um, 
there's, you know, there's things like writing down your goals every day. I don't write mine every day, but I write them a few times a week. I'll, I'll write them down in shorthand. It's like a reminder of my goals, right? This, this is the plan for follow through. I'll, I'll set alarms and reminders on my phone to do things, to execute on things that are part of my follow through plan. And if I don't do that, you know, then, then it doesn't stick. Cause that's what, that's the problem with all this stuff is so many people go through the process and they set goals or set new year's resolutions, but they don't stick. You have to have a way to make it stick. And that's the key. So you've worked as a coach, uh, a wrestling coach. You've worked as an entrepreneur and created your own business. You've worked for a university and a big institution. And now you're, you're working for yourself. Where do you see yourself 10 years from now? I see myself 10 years from now having a team of people who are teaching my program, uh, starting to build that, actually assemble that team right now where, where we're just spreading this message. I mean, my clients are unbelievable people and, and they have bought into this so much that they just want to grow this thing. They want to grow it. They want to spread it. Like they want to teach it to their kids and to their spouses and in their schools and in their communities and to their coworkers and into their employees. And so, that's what we're doing. Like we're putting together the pieces to, to start really growing this thing. And um, so yeah, 10 years from now, that's what we're doing. 10 years from now, gosh, I'll have, uh, gosh, my first one will be out of college, two kids out of college. Holy mackerel. I don't even want to think about that right now. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> and if people want to find you, where can they learn more about what you're up to and the work that you're doing? If people want to reach out, how can they, how can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. Success Through Failure is the name of my podcast. You can find it on Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you find podcasts. So Success Through Failure. Uh, my name is Jim Harshaw. So jimharshawjr.com, H-A-R-S-H-A-W-J-R uh, for junior, jimharshawjr.com. You can find my TEDx talk, links to my podcast. Uh, you can set up a free call with me. So I offer free calls. If anybody wants to jump on a call, talk about anything we just talked about here, it's just jimharshawjr.com slash apply so you can apply for a free just a free call there's no strings attached awesome jim it's been great to get to know you today and learn Likewise, about your Brian. story and i love what you're up to and i love how clear and clean you are with this process and how this process can help others and it, you know it sounds like your journey has all led to you being exactly where you're meant to be yeah, and doing is, what you're, has, you're yeah. meant to meant to be doing. So um, I am on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram intentional underscore performers. I know you also are on Twitter. Um, so give people your handle and, uh, and then yep. we'll Jim Harshaw on Twitter, Jim Harshaw JR for junior Jim Harshaw junior on Instagram. Awesome. You can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Jim, great to get to know you and look, Likewise, looking Brian. forward to maybe a cup of coffee when you're in DC or when I'm down in Charlottesville. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. This system isn't a gym thing. It's like, this is like this, this universal system that's in place in, in the lives of anybody who's performing at an elite level. I said, I wonder if, wonder if I can share this. And so I put together a curriculum and I started teaching it. And people were getting like amazing results. I, I'll be honest, Brian, I was getting res results from people. And I'm just like... I was blown away. 